And we're back with another episode in season four of Fathoms and Enneagram podcast. And today we have a bit of a crossover from my world. We have Maria Jose Munita on, who is a co-host on another podcast I'm a part of called Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. <laughs> and it's great content. It's uh, really fun. And I think, honestly, one of the top to these ones out there. Definitely. Probably a bit partial, but Maria Jose, how are you? Great. And um, really excited to be participating in this podcast with the four of you. <laughs> yes, it's it's been a long time coming. Yeah. Uh, Maria Jose has been working with Mario Socorro, who's been on our podcast a few times for 15 years, 20, 10 years. What's, what's the number there? So I met him in 2009 and we started collaborating end of 2010 okay this year yeah wow. over 12 years very nice that's very some nice. perseverance yes. on your end Let's... yeah well it takes some <laughs> <laughs> uh patience but it's been a <laughs> joyful ride yes <laughs> i mean maria jose is I, I, you couldn't ask for a better business partner for mario i mean it's just she just nails him and knows him too well uh <laughs> It's it's pretty fun watching them interact. Uh, it's like big brother sister situation. So uh, so today we wanted to have Maria Jose on to kind of talk about her experience as honestly one of the one of the premier teachers of the Enneagram, especially in South America, um, because you live in Chile. Is that correct? It is correct. Yeah, you've you grew up in Chile, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I've lived in Chile for my whole life, except for two years when I lived in South Africa. I was wondering if you could just tell us your Enneagram story, just kind of how you how you got started in the Enneagram and what you have come to know as your expertise and what you're doing with it now. Sure. I first heard about the Enneagram, I think, before I was 20 years old, through my parents. And I went to a workshop with them. They had a teacher who was teaching them about it. Uh, I didn't pay a lot of attention. I did wow. um, take a test and I came out as a, as a seven. Uh, probably <laughs> I didn't resonate with it much. So it, I just <laughs> um, moved on. And But I saw books about the Enneagram and heard people talk about it for a long time until I decided to take a, another workshop with my husband. Um, I think it was 2005. And we liked it. So he started buying all the books and I started trying to attend all the workshops that I could. And it was, I think, in 2008 when I decided to become a coach that I realized that the Enneagram would be a huge help in terms of a tool for coaching. So I started thinking about my options and how to deepen my understanding of the Enneagram and um, decided to go to one workshop with um, at the Enneagram Institute. That is not something people used to do at that time here. First, because of the language. I don't know, it's just you wouldn't think about going to the States to attend the workshop. So I went and I really liked it. So I decided to take the whole training program they had, which was like four trainings. Mm -hmm. And after that, I told my husband, no, this is it. I'm done. 
And then, oh, but there's this other workshop and there's the master class and there's this and there's that. So I kept on going. And when I was almost done with it, I, I, I remember telling my husband, yeah, but you know, there's this other teacher who does uh, applications uh, in the workplace. So I went to another training and, and then I went to the IA conference in Las Vegas, 2009. And I realized that there was a whole world of applications and teachers and, and I was overwhelmed and very excited about it. And I was representing the IEA affiliate that we had just created in Chile. And for some reason, mm. which Mario can explain really well, uh, we have not, we have different perspectives there. I ended up on the board of directors there. So I was the youngest, I think, and was part of that board for six years. Two of those, I was president of the IEA. And at the same time, when I started, when I joined the board, I met Mario and um, started taking lessons with him through Skype. <laughs> I would just, I couldn't afford to keep going to the States <laughs> for trainings. Um, but at the, I don't know, a few months later, I went to a training anyway, and we started collaborating and we have done so since then. And where have you used the Enneagram in your, as a professional? Well, what I do for a living here, I mean, besides train, I mean, Enneagram trainings, I do mainly leadership coaching here. So I just use it to understand people and I share it with people. I like to provide that as a tool to them. I don't use it kind of without them knowing. I tell them I do workshops if I have the opportunity with teams or I just teach it during the coaching sessions. It's not all I do. It's just one tool that I use. Yeah. And if people want to uh, enlist your services, where would they, where would they find you? At mjmunita.com. That's great. It's a great it's website. It's my beautiful website. It it's in Spanish. It's well, yeah. <laughs> Google translate. Um, yeah. But you do work with English clients as well. This is, I do. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah, don't you speak like four languages? No, I just speak two. I feel like I, I learned this about you. No, I okay. speak English <laughs> and Spanish. I, well, Spanish is my native language. And English, I went to an English school, mm. then lived in South Africa for two years. And now I've been working with English people, English speaking people for 12 years. So, and I learned about the Enneagram in English. So it's sometimes I have more vocabulary about the Enneagram in English than in Spanish. Maria Jose, one of the, you know, one of the things I, I really like and appreciate about your work uh, it, with the Enneagram is its practicality. And so its ability to apply the system and the framework of the Enneagram to real world applications. And, you know, th there's a whole host we could get into, but, but, you know, one of them would be, you know, some of the, the aids and obstacles to clear thinking that you, you do some great kind of work along yeah. those lines. And then also um, this notion of cultural overlays that, you know, we are this kind of collection um, of overlays of identities. So I'm wondering uh, if you could just talk a little bit about that and describe for us maybe some different overlays and how they can help and hinder our growth. Um, because I think that, 
we we often and the reason I wanted to ask is because I think we're so quick to just stick the Enneagram on like a sticker <laughs> onto our lives and expect it to just work. But you have, you know, I think a more nuanced and complex approach. I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's it's a big topic, I think. It's say that it never ends, but it helps to have some kind of framework. We have this clear thinking framework you mentioned where we have the built-in biases as kind of one of these layers that help us or hinder our ability to see things clearly. We have personality, we have culture, and I think culture is so complex. I was think when you were talking about that, I was thinking about the different layers for me, for example. Yeah. Mm. Coming from Chile, it's a very small country, very long and kind of narrow and far away from everything. And that has an impact in our personality. We live in a kind of mm. like, ah, we're far away. Mm. We are isolated. We're different, uh, kind of fourish thing. I don't think we're four, but we feel a bit like that. Um, religion has a big impact. There is a lot of mm. Catholic influence in our culture and in myself, in me. So it's guilt is a big topic, regardless of your type. And then you have, I don't know, the time you were born. I mean, we're very different to millennials. I mean, you might be millennials, but I am very different. I talk to my friends and how we're raising kids. And the world is just so different that, and our identities are, have been built and um, kind of given shape by the time we lived in as kids and young adults. And so there's so many, the social class, race, all of these things when you are immersed in, in a particular group uh, or community, you don't see them. You see the world and you think it is like that. It, it is only when you step back and get some perspective that you can see how there's so much more, but it is hard. And it seems, it seems to kind of deconstruct I think what's an often used kind of application of the Enneagram, which is you find out what everyone's number is and then you kind of get them, right, or understand them. So, because um, what you're saying is for me as a, as, as a type three, compared to another type three, perhaps in a, born in a different place at a different time, in a different cultural religious context, that has to be kind of considered and uh, integrated mm. into your own work and growth, correct? Absolutely. I have a client I'm coaching at the moment who's a type three. I think he's a navigating three, though, not a preserving three. But he was raised very kind of Catholic. And he wants to be the best mm. expression of what his community values. Mm. And, and so religion has a big impact in how he deals with the world. And it would be different in another setting, not only in, T I mean, even in Chile, if, if he didn't come from that family or environment, he would be a different three. To get a little deeper in this, our, it sounds like we're, we're, you're kind of saying our conditionings are conditioned even. Uh, almost like uh, you can navigate like a Chilean. Does that make sense? Is that, does it get that far? Does it go that to that extent? Yes. 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I think Chile is a navigating country. So we are, at least here, we're all a bit navigating or to some extent it's more natural. But I navigate as a Chilean because it's my, the classifications I make are given by our culture. So, for example, mm. my daughter and I were talking a little earlier mm. and she was she's still at school, but she was hanging out during New Year's Eve with people from who were already at university. And mm. they were all talking about the school they came out of. They studied it. They never talked about the kind of career they were studying or anything, because here you might be 60 years old and you still ask the other person, what school did you attend? Because that says so much about you that you don't need to need you don't need to know a lot more, or you think you don't. Just put them in a box, you know. That's cool. Okay, now I know who I'm talking to. Uh, so those classifications have to do with our culture and are different to other countries. Those conditionings, whether that is cultural or your type or your instinctual bias, how do you both? use those as a tool without them becoming, without over-identifying with them or placing too much importance on them? I think that the most useful thing to me is to understand those conditionings or those layers and then contrast with other realities or circumstances. And mm. working with people from so many countries, having lived abroad uh, has helped me. So I can get, as I said before, some perspective and use my own to contrast with other people and try to position myself where I decide to and not how I'm being conditioned, you know, by my um, upbringing. Uh, it's hard. Mm. Um, but but curiosity about other ways of seeing things, I think, helps. And so that's how I use it. I think words. I use it as a reference more than over-identifying with it. Digging a little deeper into that, you know, I, I really do. Uh, since, since day one, when I first picked up um, one of Mario's books a couple years ago, just the value of, the, first off, the strategies... Um, but the adaptive versus maladaptive, um, it, it really makes sense that you guys place so much value on uncovering our overlays so that, I mean, that's one of the main ways you become more adaptive, right? And you named stepping back, but I'm, I'm curious if you could, how does, how does somebody really practice going about seeing what you can't see? Like it's, it's been said, you can't bite your own teeth, right? <laughs> Like you can't, your eyes can't see their, your, themselves. Uh, it's just, how do you see what you can't see? How, in your mind, like from what you, you've ex, your experiences, but also from the ATA approach, how does one go about doing that? How do you uncover these things and how do you hold them better? I believe that um, first, an approach that is not judgmental is the kind of the main thing. It's... Mm. I think that it's really hard to see yourself clearly if you're making judgments about certain ways of doing or being. Yeah. Um, mm. 
and that's why I like our approach. And that's why, look, I started studying with Mario and I stayed with him and I teach it now. It's because I think it's a really good, good way because it's, I think it's more pragmatic, but realistic, you know, and accepting of, hmm. look, it's just human nature. We're not talking a, about hmm. a divine entity who is not, no, no, no. Look, we're human beings. Mm -hmm. We are animals a bit more evolved and we do stuff and <laughs> i don't expect people or myself to be these ideal uh i don't huh. sometimes huh. i do but i need to hmm. <laughs> i, I tried to at one point <laughs> yeah well i have i'm a type one i but um <laughs> but so <laughs> i think that very realistic accepting of the difference, different ways of being, the different personalities or traits or all of that. And not believing that we are one thing, we just do different things. So those mm. things are key, I believe, mm. to holding ourselves lightly and believe that we can change. If we don't mm. like what we're seeing, we will st stop looking. And if we think that there's no choice, mm. we will just avoid the work altogether. Yeah. So to me, those are very mm. basic things that help us um, work with ourselves and with other people. I want to go back to a word that you said. You said judgmental. Like first and foremost, it shouldn't be judgmental. Can you kind of compare and contrast what does that actually look like to, to be non-judgmental in your approach? Look, I just want to be clear that I do judge myself and other people. <laughs> I'm not pretending to be. Uh, That's okay, all I'm trying so to get out of okay, moving on. And no, no. I try to do it as, I mean, as little as possible. Um, but sure. I think that understanding evolution has helped me. Understanding mm. that mm. we just do things because at some point, in some place, they were useful. And now we're yeah. just using the wrong program yeah. uh, for the challenge we have ahead. I don't think we're mean or that we have bad intentions. And so understanding that how we operate has helped me not judge as much as I could. Mm. And that's how it looks like. It's like, okay, it's evident. It's obvious that this would be like that. I can expect it. It's, it is consistent. Yeah with how people are or how they were raised. I don't like it, but... Right. Yeah. Everything from like ancient ways of being to how you grew up with your parents and your siblings. All of that. That's why... And, and I think that's why in our approach we pay so much attention to evolution, to understanding science, to understanding how the mind works. Because the moment you understand those things, it is a lot easier to accept what you're seeing. Uh, when you don't and you have this idea that things or people should be a particular way, you start judging hmm. the moment they are not that way you yeah. think they should be or you should be. I've always found it uh, funny and ironic, the people that believe in change or believe in growth but don't like change. Does that make sense? <laughs> 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 they believe in like growing, but they don't yeah. like to change. Uh, they don't. Does that make sense? I just that's what I hear you saying. Like, I think there's a lot of people, and and I, change is scary. Um, change is 
you feel like you will lose something, that the things that you care about, uh, you will not be able to cater for those. And, or you have a sense of identity and you just don't think that you can change that because you are like that. So I think there's a desire to grow and mature as long as you don't need to change the basics of who you think you are. But I understand that, you know, I, I, yeah, I think that it's natural. And that's why I think the work that we can do with the Enneagram is so important because understanding your starting point, your, the program that you're using helps you understand the logic that you're using and how that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. Uh, but you don't need to change who you are. You just need to change a certain certain things that you're doing that are not working. It's less... Some people say that it's more superficial. It's just... It works better. Uh, it's more realistic. And it's more compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. As you're talking about these things, I'm thinking about just in my within my own self, within my own body, I'm thinking about all of these layers and the potential for tension. And as I uncover more and more of those contradictions within myself, the potential for the the tension there to just overwhelm me. And so what I love about what I'm hearing you say is that it gives me a way to diffuse that tension within myself and and become more of an observer of what's happening in me rather than getting distracted from the really important work I have to do as a human on this planet um, getting distracted by just and bound up by the tension of all of these intersections. So yes, thank you for that. Yeah. And mm. I think that tension is a signal. I think that ten- tension points you to the things that you're wrestling with mm. and that you might want to challenge. I see that as a parent all the time. I think that there's nothing more mm-hmm. challenging for me than parenting. And, and for example, my, daughter one of them the 17 year old she wanted to go away with friends for new year's eve no adults her boyfriend there and if i look around most of my friends would not give her permission to do that you know and i want to feel perfect you know no matter how much i have worked on myself i'm still type one and i still want to feel perfect mm-hmm. And I want to be a perfect parent, but I want to be seen as perfect by the community or my circle and my parents. And I don't want to be judged. So I feel the tension. And when I feel that tension, I try to understand what that, where that's coming from. And I can see that it's the image that I want to project to the people around me and then to my daughter and the world she's living in compared to mine, which are different. So I need to make a decision, but understanding what's creating that tension can help me see what the different pieces are and have the freedom to decide, okay, so now I want to be in this place. This is who I want to be now. And I let her go, you know, and I still feel the tension a bit, but... um, yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> but the tension is a good, good signal to pay attention to. That makes me think of 
in, in the awareness to action approach, like you have the aids and obstacles to clear thinking. And what I'm hearing you say is you're kind of filtering through those different concentric circles. And I'll let you share those in a moment. But you're thinking through those concentric circles and seeing what in this circle is this, what is it bringing up for me? Um, whether it's an instinctual bias or a cultural overlay and that sort of thing. Can you kind of walk us through but just kind of practically speaking, as you're working through this point of tension, how are you filtering through all your thoughts and feelings? It's not that uh, structured. I don't want okay. to pretend <laughs> to use the whole okay. framework every time in order. But so the framework that we're talking about here is how we have different layers in terms of obstacles to clear thinking. And the first one is the built-in biases, all these models of the mind that helps us think fast, but not clear, not see clearly. And we all have them. <laughs> the sooner you get to know them, <laughs> the better your life will be, I think. They're non-conscious, but we just think like that. It's like shortcuts to thinking so that we don't use too much energy. We have personality, so our type, our instinctual bias. We have then uh, another layer that it's culture. And we've covered that, how culture could be your culture of your family, your origin, you come from another country or your country, school, religion, etc. Then we have another layer that it's ignorance, the things that we don't know. And I think that that also shapes how we see things when we don't know about certain things, when we don't have certain distinctions there are things that we're just blind to. We don't see danger when, where there might, there might be, for example. And then there's misinformation, and there's so much of it. I was with a group of friends, and one of them was joking, saying, I read it on the internet, and if it's there, it's true. Well, <laughs> uh, he was joking. But, okay. right. but there's so much information out there that filtering through what's true, what isn't, it's a big deal. So what we have is things that can help us um, see more clearly in those five layers. So for the built-in biases, we need to create, some, we need to know about them first. And then we need to get some antidotes to not fall prey at those. For example, I think that cognitive dissonance is one of the main things that we all experience. And when you, Lindsay, were talking about that tension, it's usually cognitive dissonance. It's something that I believe about myself or the, or the world, and there's something that it's opposite to that, that those, those two things are in tension. I'm a good mother, but then I'm also doing things that might be seen as bad for the kid. I let them drink. Wow, mm. you know, not a lot, but mm. a bit. <laughs> I feel cognitive dissonance there, you know, and yeah. I can either say, well, I'm a good mother <laughs> uh, because it's um, what you should do. It's a good thing for them. They need to try. So I need to, so I need to uh, resolve that tension by changing my belief or not let them drink. Or I can say, ah, well, I'm okay with living taking the risk of not being a good mother, but today I feel that it's what I want to do, you know? it's the... Anyway, so we experience that tension and we need to understand how to deal with that. For personality, I think that what we have in the awareness to action approach to deal with that is the awareness to action process. That's one of the most powerful things I think we do. 
when we work with the narratives we have about ourselves and the world and change them, expand them. So as a type one, I will never stop wanting to feel more perfect. I mean, to feel perfect. But I do, but I am able to understand what's the narrative that I have in terms of how I am going to accomplish that and change it and expand it. So I can say, well, maybe I will be even feel even more perfect if I do this or if I do that. Things that are more adaptive. And that helps us not change our personality, but expand mm -hmm. it, make it more flexible, mature. Mm -hmm. Then we have cultural mapping for the cultural differences. And I think that if you don't know your culture, if you don't understand and you don't you don't have the tools to compare it to other cultures, it's very different. So mapping the different cultures helps. Then we have general education. We need to keep learning so that misinformation, it's less and less every time. And then we need to have tools to debunk misinformation. So we had ignorance and we need to learn more and we have misinformation and we need to be able to discriminate between what's true and what, what isn't. I don't use all of that every yeah. time, but I think that sure. understanding those layers helps use the tools that are required. Yeah, for sure. I'm wondering if we can get a little bit vulnerable about your own personal experience um, with these next questions. And I'm just wondering what it's been like for you um, to be a Chilean woman and working, you know, in this like North American field where the Enneagram is just exploding and or reemerging, I guess you could say, what, what's been your experience? What have been some of the advantages and disadvantages there? Yeah, I can only speak for myself. I'm not sure that it would be the same experience for another woman from Chile. I think that having lived abroad has helped me not feel like at a disadvantage, probably. There's also the fact that because we're a small country, very removed, we live looking at the rest of the world. Our lives revolve about what, what's happening in other countries, which I think it's an advantage because many times people in the U.S. only look inwards. So to be very, very honest, <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I have an advantage <laughs> because of it. And also because uh, in the Enneagram field specifically, it started in Chile. So although I had nothing to do with it, I feel kind of proud about it. It's like, you know, I'm from this very far away mm. country, but it started there. And Wait a minute, the Enneagram is not American. <laughs> it is American from Chile. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. Uh, and a lot of people know about the Enneagram here, a lot. Uh, it's been taught at universities and the Jesuits ha have expanded it and have taught it to many, many people. So it's not like here, it's now a boom of the Enneagram. It's been like that for a long time. So to me, it's more natural. And mm. I, I think I... <laughs> There are two things. One, it's having been part of the IEA board and then teaching the Enneagram. And on the IEA board, I think that it was at a time where they wanted to become more international. So I was useful in that way. And I had the ability to 
provide the point of view of the other countries while at the same time being ver be very realistic and pragmatic about what the organization needed. So I wasn't defending the other countries against the US-centric view mm. of the Enneagram in the IA. Now, I was trying to provide, kind of get the best for the organization at the same time that I understood what was needed on the outside. But many people from other countries didn't like me much because of it, mm. you know? Mm. Um, they were expecting me to be their champion. Mm. And if I wasn't wow. in agreement with them, I didn't. I don't know. I think it has to do with my own personality that I don't put myself kind of barriers or boundaries to what I can do because of being a woman or from Chile or from anywhere. It hasn't been painful or difficult or anything. I think that I don't get to a place feeling or acting like, um, look, I'm here to tell you what to do. I kind of grow in my roles. And then at some point, I take a new role. <laughs> no, that's yeah, really insightful, Maria Jose. I'm I'm curious though, you know, since you had such experience working with the Enneagram in these other contexts or f with people from other contexts, what are some of the kind of most prominent irritants or pet peeves that you may have experienced uh, in doing this work across cultures? Anything come to mind? It's funny because I can compare more to Europe, for example, than to Chile. I have done more work mm. abroad than in my home country, uh, like teaching the Enneagram. <laughs> in Europe, for example, you see more professionals integrating the Enneagram as a tool for their work uh, with more clear mm. understanding of the boundaries of how they can use it. I'll contrast with the U.S. experience. I think that in the U.S. I've seen more people learning about the Enneagram without more people, not all people, more people, without a background, a professional background, that it's mm. aligned mm. with it and believing that they can use it or explain pretty much anything through the Enneagram, you know, mm. using mm. the Enneagram. It's like mm. the tool they need. And um, I've seen it more there. Mm. It's kind of like more of a religion in the States yeah. than it is anywhere yep. else. <laughs> or treat it more like a religion. What, what is your best guess as to why? Well, maybe it's because it's become known through churches and not through mm. professional settings. I don't know. I think that there's also a more pragmatic mindset in Europe than there is in the States. Uh, mm. In general, I'm generalizing here. <laughs> I'm not. But, sure, sure. Um, but I've seen um, more, I think, the daily lives of people in Europe, it's, not so linked to God and religion as it is in the States. Mm -hmm. That could be one thing. Mm -hmm. Do you think it has something to do with like how much more production mindset that the U.S. has where it's, I feel like there's a difference between like being pragmatic about something 
and like needing something to produce something for you or to the whole trope of like reading two books and then starting an Enneagram coaching business. (laughs) Like that, that seems very Statesian. Yeah, but it's, it's a, I, I believe that the States, it's a, a type three culture and that could be kind of another way of explaining the same thing you just said, mm-hmm. you know, like wanting to produce something. Um, yeah, that could be. Almost like making it your identity than just a tool that you're using. Yeah. Yeah. And to be, to be fair, I see that everywhere in small kind of in groups of, I mean, people from everywhere. Okay. Just more prominent, I would say, there. I was going to say, I wonder, you know, as we've, as the United States has been more so uh, identified as a Christian nation, mm-hmm. nation um, as certain sects within Christianity are flailing at the moment uh, or have been for a while. I wonder if this is like sort of a last straw of like, well, maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. this is what we can use to find salvation, you know, because the other ones aren't working, you know. I wonder if that's a part of it yeah. too. Yeah, yeah and, and and yes, and I think it's a different mindset as well. More, I don't want to use the word, but kind of more essentialist or more, you know, like um, sure. I try not to use it, but um, <laughs> finding something out there that will, mm-hmm. as you're saying, save me or be helpful or, but it's out there and, and it's something that exists, you know. Whereas I see it as a tool, a very, very useful one, but it's just a tool. Shifting maybe to a little bit more of your, less of your professional work and more of just your personal growth and work. What's something as your strategy of striving to feel perfect and you have a navigate, navigating instinctual bias? What, what has become easier for you as you've grown and maybe what has become harder? I think what's become easier is challenging my own stories. It's become like mm. addictive, you know, so to, okay, is this is how I want to mm. see it. Is this how I want to position myself? And so that's become easier. I don't like to talk about I'm a one, I'm a one, I'm a one, but, but because we're on this podcast, uh, I'll refer to it anyway. So as a type one, one of the things that, it is a practice that helps once is acceptance to be to f- see things more objectively and not judge them and not get so irritated about it and understanding the enneagram understanding critical critical thinking understanding science truly helps me be more accepting and so that's become easier kind of to relax more to be more flexible too much flexibility it's not always easy when you don't want you need to decide where you want to be how you want to react and and i still have mm-hmm. the fear that i will be judged by people because of it so th- that's always there so i try to challenge my yeah. stories but when i want to decide what's the new story it's a bit frightening, frightening at times because I might make a mistake. Yeah, Maria Jose, uh, my wife is, has the same strategy as yourself, <laughs> and one of her mantras <laughs> in this season has been, "I've decided not to care about that." 
Um, but but I do know for her as well is this sort of slippery slope. Well, if I let go of that, well, then nothing is. I'll have no control anymore at all. Like <laughs> I'm just, I'm just curious about that 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 slippery slope ness mm. of of letting go too much for the one what what that mm-hmm. is like and how you manage that mm. i was going to say i don't no i i <laughs> <laughs> well i guess we're done here yeah <laughs> um because uh, chaos is coming and irresponse everything is irresponsible yeah well i i think that rewriting the story is the key to me in that regard so it's not that I don't care about that. I care about something bigger, more relevant. Mm. And mm. that That's involves good. not caring about smaller yeah. things, but I care about the bigger thing mm. and I deal with that that way. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say I will not care about it without an alternative, you know, because it's mm. scary. But yeah, I care about something bigger, more relevant, um, closer to my heart or and I deal with that that way. Now, having said that, there are certain things where or moments where I do want things to be done my way and I insist a bit more. <laughs> uh, but overall, I think that rewriting the story and finding a bigger purpose um, to care about allows you to not care about certain things mm. that's great that's really good that's really great. I love that thanks for sharing coming to a close uh, another question I wanted to ask I think you've been informed uh, before we started today just kind of our, our theme of this season was looking at the dynamics of personhood which those three things for us are individuality mutuality and unity and I feel like we've kind of been progressing in that way as we were initially getting your individuality uh, and then kind of cultural overlays. This is how we are mutual in our thinking. But yeah, like it seems appropriate that we've moved to the unity section. And, and I'm just curious uh, how, how you would kind of define unity through your, your lens, um, through your experience, but maybe even, maybe even also through the, the awareness to action approach. What, what is, how, does, how does one become unified? What does that look like? If I had to define it, what is what it is for me, I don't think about unity in worldwide terms. I don't think about unity as kind of in a bigger and a really big scope. I think about unity in the one-on-one relationships or group relationships and seeing people more clearly, mm-hmm. you know, seeing, seeing, really seeing mm-hmm. people. I always tell my kids that it gives me joy to interact with the people who, I don't know, provide services to me or sell things or my own clients and truly connect with them, see them, understand them, feel with them. To me, that's the unity that I pursue. On some level, part of unity is what's required is to see clearly and Mm -hmm. to be curious enough to hold the, the tension both perceived tension and actual tension and you can't do that until you see clearly with compassion and a mm. non non-judgmental stance so that i mean that that feels that feels like a great answer to me yeah i was gonna <laughs> say I, I think you were even describing it um with your daughter earlier 
I think you found unity in that situation because as a nine, unity isn't an absence of conflict or tension. It's holding the tension. And I think that's what you were doing in that situation. So, yeah. yeah. Well, MJ, any final words? What would you what would you offer to us youngins in the States? Get a passport. <laughs> Get a passport. <laughs> yes. yes. Actually, that's a brilliant... <laughs> Yes. Love it. And then yeah, do something well, with it. Yeah. What it was meant to be used <laughs> for. But uh, mm-hmm. now I, I've realized that there is phenomena of small countries compared to big countries. And big countries tend to be more, kind of look more inwards. You don't need, you don't depend on the countries uh, that are outside of kind of. And mm. you have the same in Brazil. Uh, you have the same in South Africa. Uh, so I understand the phenomena. And within the States, you have like different countries. The people from the East are very different to the people in the North, yeah. the middle of the country. So I understand that you might not need or think you don't need to look outside, but so rich to know more about other places, other kinds of people. And allows you to understand yourself better. I, I my <laughs> the same daughter, she wanted to finish school and go study in Europe. But she went on an exchange at school last year, the first half of the year. And she went to the UK. She came back and realized that she didn't want to go and study abroad right away. But what she realized is that what she thought she was looking for was already there. She knew herself better by living overseas, knowing more people, different Mm. people. She got a better understanding of herself and who she wanted to be. So now she doesn't need to kind of leave the country right away. There's no sense of urgency in that. But she had to go away to know herself. You know, so I think that that applies to all of us. Mm -hmm. Understanding others also allows you to understand yourself better. Look, even if you start watching movies from other countries, there's it it is so much easier to watch movies in your own language. But if you start watching series or movies from other countries, you will see things that are just so so different to how you do stuff at home. It is cultural references. And, and that's one of the things that I miss the most. It's the cultural references when I'm teaching in English. I mean, in, the, in North America or Europe. Learning about those things, it is very useful. And movies might be a good way to start. I don't, that's a great way to end this episode. Um, well done. Well hey, done. Thank you absolutely. so much for, for joining us. And everyone, please um, go to, uh, we'll have all of Maria Jose's contact information, all the things where she lives, uh, where she gets her coffee, <laughs> yeah. all of those things will be in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I have a Wait YouTube yeah. channel, <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, uh-huh. LinkedIn, all of it. <laughs> Um, and if you have, I mean, I know we, we use a lot of awareness to action language, um, especially in this in this episode, but also throughout the podcast. If you're curious about that language, awareness to action podcast has a lot of the deeper explanations of, of the language we're using as well as why we're using it. So definitely check that out as well. Maria Jose, thank you so much. Um, it's been a 
pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time.